Listener Production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> this episode, we're talking to Miriam Silver, uh, someone actually, Jane, you and I met some years ago in Adelaide where we shared a platform. Uh, we were on a panel together and uh, she's quite a remarkable woman. She is very, very softly spoken, very self-effacing, but a powerhouse in every other way, a really remarkable person with a very soft approach, which is Something I've never mastered. She's a real inspiration too. I think what she represents and how she's gone about her roles in the corporate sphere and then on boards and in the community is really extraordinary. And, you know, it is hard. She is a Muslim woman who wears a hijab and that's fantastic on one level, but on another level it means you're always standing out. You're always, you know, um, carrying, in a way, your whole community on your shoulders wherever you go. And I think that's very difficult. It must have been particularly difficult when she started working for Elders, of all things, the agricultural company. I can't think of a more kind of archetypal Aussie blokey company for a small woman wearing a hijab to run. Miriam, uh, you've had such an interesting career uh, across a range of sectors and so on, but at the moment you're very much a portfolio of board roles. I wondered what you've learned over the years about having an impact on boards and uh, what has been the most fulfilling part of those roles. Thanks, Catherine and Jane, and thanks for having me. It's been an interesting journey. I started with being Deputy Chair of the Training and Skills Commission, which was just an extraordinary insight into government and policy and why government policy is important for people because the Training and Skills Commission is the independent body that actually advises the government on where to put funds for training that lead to employment. So therefore you suddenly become very understanding of why policy is important and sitting in that board where you have, you know, unions and you have business and you have industry sector experts, you have a lot of people who have very different points of view and trying to get them to agree on things and trying to make sure that the quality of the training's right and the standards are adhered to when you're listening to industry and you're making sure that the courses that are run are actually the right length and not too long or too short, you actually learn quite a lot on there. So I found that as the first kind of paid external board that I was on, I found that extraordinarily interesting moving on to things like, you know, TAFE and the university where they're well run and, you know, TAFE was starting up as a statutory authority. That was interesting again because you're merging organisations and you've got all the cultural issues that go with that and then becoming a statutory authority, you've got all the issues that go with that and so you kind of get a really good grip on governance and so forth. The university was a different kettle of fish, University of South Australia, because, you know, really well run and really well managed and so you're in there talking about strategy, you know, what's the next thing, how do you get more students in and not so much about the policy because the govern because the governance is so well run in the universities. And moving to different boards, I think the biggest one that I learnt from would be the two schools that I ended up being chair of, so the Islamic College of South Australia, when they were about to lose their funding because they hadn't adhered to the right policies and 
uh, hadn't kind of done the right thing and taking that over i just remember we we just i worked with the principal you know from about december right through to january just trying to get all the policies in place trying to get a board in place trying to get all the governance right because and you just have to work flat out because you know that there are teachers and children that depend on you actually doing that and we got that over the line and got the funding and so forth so then it was about you know running a school which is an interesting thing when you have a community school and then taking over Malik Fard or being asked to take over Malik Fard school in Sydney Islamic school in Sydney was kind of extraordinary because they'd lost their funding and the lawyer actually rang me up and said we'd really like you to be the chair and I said no I can't do it I don't you know I don't think I can do it and I don't want to do it and then he said no we need you and I said no I can't do it I don't want to do it and then he said we really need you and I said no I can't do it I don't want to do it <laughs> and then I said to my husband I can't sleep at night knowing that I might be able to do something that can help two and a half thousand children and I think I really need to do this because I've been privileged to learn a lot of skills in my business career and I like to give back and so I think I really need to do this and he said go for it and that was you know a road to a very interesting journey it took us two years to get the funding back mm-hmm. and we had the most extraordinary people actually join the board to to help and that's when you know that the business community in Australia just gives back because pretty well everyone I asked to join the board just went straight away, yes, I'll join your board. I think we probably had the most high-powered board of any school in Australia at one point in time. You know, we had a chancellor, we had the ex-head of the Department of Education of New South Wales, we had all sorts of people on this board, but we needed that to be able to fix what had happened and put all the policies and procedures in place. So I guess... The two main things I've learned is you can't underestimate governance. You just can't take it for granted. You can't underestimate it. You have to have it. You have to have your policies. You have to have your risk registers. You have to have those things, no matter whether you're a small community board or you're, you know, an ASX 100 board, you have to have those things. You have to adhere to them. You have to look at them. You have to monitor them. You really, really have to do that. And the second thing I would say is there are so many amazingly good people in the community within Australia and and overseas who are so happy to give their time and skills and energy to boards and causes they believe in. And you just have to ask them and, you know, like, like both of you do as well. But it's just amazing the number of people who are so, so, so willing to give back. It's, it's extraordinary. Talking about schooling makes me think it'd be good to take you back uh, through time to your own childhood and your own schooling. I mean, you came here um, from London when you were six. Interestingly enough, I came here from London when I was six as well, some time before you, I suspect, <laughs> Miriam. <laughs> oh, Jane, um, not too long, not too long before me, Jane. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Nevertheless, um, tell us about that. Can you describe what that was like, you know, and what your childhood was like, what your early role models were like to be someone who is... Um, you know, so effective and also so uh, community-minded. You must have had some modelling for that. Yeah, it was interesting. I I still remember when we came because so Dad came, we were skilled migrants, so Dad was a radiographer, so therefore we came to Adelaide because they needed radiographers. We got put up at the hostel near the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and I remember, so I went to the local, went to Woodville Primary School and, you know, I remember 
being packed a lunch, which had these two, I was only a tiny thing. And I remember I had these two white bread Vegemite sandwiches. I'm like, what the hell is this? What am I supposed to do with these things? And how will I ever eat two sandwiches? Because I was always brought up to, you know, eat everything on your plate. And I'm terrified because I've got these two sandwiches at six years old that I can't eat. You know, I don't know how to eat. So it was kind of one of those really weird moments that always stuck with me. And the thing I remember about school was maybe because I'd gone to school for a few years in London, I don't know, but I seemed to be a bit brighter than all the other children. So I kind of got moved up fairly quickly, you know, skipped a few grades of school here and there during during my childhood, which I, I guess was a good thing. And then I didn't really realise what had happened and I always wondered why I was the smallest and youngest in the class, but it was kind of because I'd skipped a few years of school as, as well. And the second thing I remember is everyone had aunties and uncles and grandmothers. And I'm like, where... I don't have any aunties and uncles and grandmothers and I really want this extended family. And that's what the Muslim community became to us. And because in Adelaide, everyone was so disparate, the Muslim community, you know, we had from everyone from all ends of the country. And so therefore they were our aunties and uncles. And that's where you kind of got that family, extended family from, as well as the neighbours in the street. So, you know, one of the neighbours in the street taught me piano lessons and we went and stayed with her while mum and dad were at work before they came home and, you know, all of those things. So it was, it was quite extraordinary. So I think even from a young age, you know, that that kind of community spirit was was always there because they were our extended family. And then I got a scholarship to go to private school and, uh, you know, I felt it wasn't something my parents could have afforded to, to do or send me to. So getting the scholarship was kind of a really, really big thing. I remember that they struggled in having to buy the uniform. It was something that they were like, oh, no, you know, how are we going to afford a uniform and how are we going to afford this jumper and this blazer and all these things that, you know, kind of go with private school. And suddenly I'm at the best private school in, in Adelaide, uh, best private girls school in Adelaide, and, you know, everyone's very rich at the school. And I'm like, I'm not quite sure about this. I don't know what's going on. But, you know, they just provided the most incredible opportunities for me to learn different things. You know, I still remember we had access to computers and things like that when it was just, you know, kind of not seen or or not done. And I really loved maths and I really loved French and, you know, the kind of the curriculum didn't fit French, you know, into the timetable. And so the headmistress said, that's okay, I'll just take you one-on-one for French lessons, which she did. She took me one-on-one for French lessons so that I could do my French, uh, you know, instead of doing doing other subjects. And, you know, I'm really, really grateful to having that kind of education. I think it was an extraordinary thing for me to go through. And mum and dad worked all the time, you know, they were hardworking people, but mum was very community-minded. And, you know, she was the driving force that made sure that, you know, we went to the mosque and, you know, we had Islamic lessons and we learned about religion and we understood what it was and, you know, we met with other families and and she was really the driving force in that. So, you know, a lot of my role modelling really came from mum because she was so strong and, you know, really, you know, served the community well. And when she finally retired from work, uh, she took early retirement in her 50s, and she worked every day at Muslim Women's Association until the day she died because she was just so much about giving back and community and bringing people together and providing, you know, resources for people that didn't have it because I think she always remembered what it was like for her being, 
you know, kind of taken away from her family in, in London and being on her own. And so she always wanted to, she always really strived to provide services and, you know, provide courses for whether people were older or younger or um, in need of something or refugees. And, you know, people really trusted mum. So they would come, you know, if they had uh, issues of domestic violence, they would come and talk to mum and ask for advice, you know, really in you know, an extraordinary way. And so the Muslim Women's Association, which had its 25th anniversary last year, uh, you know, was actually started by mum and a number of, uh, you know, other women who we call auntie. But, you know, mum was really that driving force to make make that happen. A really strong role model for me. And Miriam, um, given you were so bright and you'd got a scholarship and you've just spoken very compellingly about the role modelling your mum did around the community, but was the expectation also that you would go to university and you would have a professional career? Yeah, absolutely. Mum and Dad were just like, there was no, both my, my sister's older than me and there was just, uh, we had to go to university, but we wanted to, but we we definitely had to. I always say Mum was very bright. I think my sister had to work really hard for everything that, that she got. I think my dad had to work really hard for everything he got. When mum was growing up, her father died when all the kids were under 10. There were six kids, all the kids were under 10. So mum never got the opportunity to finish, you know, kind of school or um, because she had to work to support the two boys to go to school in the family. And then when they went to London, she just went to secretarial college and, um, you know, became a secretary, which is what she did for her career. But she was super smart. I always said to her, you know, when she was in her 50s and 60s, when she retired, I told her she should go back. She should go to university. And she was like, oh, no, I'm too old. I can't do that. But I think she was actually super, super smart. So I like to think I'd take after mum. Do you think, I've, I, you know, you often hear this and it resonates with me as well because, interestingly enough, Mary, my mother was is super smart and also didn't get to go to university and, you know, worked as a secretary. Mine either yeah. and also worked as a secretary. Yes, it is. It's it's very common story of very bright women of that era. And I sometimes wonder if there's part of our generation which is almost living the lives our mothers wished they'd had you know, we, we sort of have a feeling of they didn't get to do it. So we almost do it for them. I think there's part of that. I've never thought of it in that way. And mum certainly never pressured me at all to to do that. But she was always so interested in, mm. in what I did. And I, I remember being in high school and, you know, I loved maths. You know, I'm a geek. It's okay. This is where we part company, Miriam. <laughs> I like to read stories about mathematicians. You know, it's what I do. And I used to come home and, you know, I used to annoy the teachers. So I'd take the maths book home and finish the maths book in one night. You know, the terms maths book in one night and then go back the next day. You know, no crazy kid like that. But mum would always be interested. Like she'd always want to help read the book and help kind of, you know, oh, tell me about that. And what does that mean? And what's this differential equation? And what's this calculus? And what's this algebra? And what does that mean? And, you know, please explain it to me and please help me. I always remember that mum was always interested to that level in terms of what I did. Not so much when I went to uni, but certainly when I was at high school, she was always interested in even looking at the books and reading them and trying to understand them. And even when she went, you know, into Muslim women's, whenever they had something like a, you know, a legal agreement for, you know, rental or property or anything, she would always bring it home. I mean, I was on the management committee anyway, but she would bring it home and say, you know, okay, Miriam, you know, tell me what do we need to do here? How do we look at this? What else do we need to think about? So she understood 
kind of what I could bring to the equation as as well. But I don't think, I don't feel like I lived my life because I thought that's what mum wanted me to do. Mm. No, I, I don't know that we do it consciously, but I think... It, it might be unconscious. Mm. Yeah. You might be right there, Jane. Fast forward you, Miriam, uh, to a time when, in fact, Jane and I first met you um, when we were in Adelaide speaking on a panel. Uh, you were working for Elders, the rural services company, and I'll never forget you described on stage how people in the company and customers reacted to a small woman in a veil um, working in that environment. Yes. And I, I'd love you to tell us about that and what sort of attitudes and assumptions you were coming up against. It, it was, I think, one of the funniest things I really look back on it now and just laugh quite a lot and I'm still good friends with a lot of people at Elder so that's also a, also a nice a nice thing as well and I think they just didn't factor in that a woman could be a general manager and suddenly this woman was quite small and she had a hijab on and it was like what on earth do we do now so I still remember <laughs> that first day you know walking in and someone says to me oh because I'd come from ANZ where everyone is very tolerant and very okay with no matter who you are or what you look like because they just care about what you do. And and also, you know, I'd come from Chief Operating Officer in the Pacific. So, you know, we just had 16 different countries and 16 different cultures. So it was an extraordinary thing to then suddenly walk into Elders where, you know, one of the guys said, oh, Miriam, I've moved out of the big office so that you can have it. And I'm used to sitting in an office where everyone just has a small desk, as we all did in, in ANZ. And I said, okay, that's that's okay. And then I'm looking around and I see lots of men and I'm thinking something's not right. I don't know what's not right, but something's not right. And then I walk around a bit more. I said, oh, I want to go meet everyone on the floor. And they looked at me and thought I was a bit odd, but they they kind of said, okay, you're the general manager. Okay, we'll we'll do that. And then we walked around and then I just went, where are the women? Like, where are these women? Mm. And all these men are looking at me going, you have that thing on your head. Like, what does that mean? And what are you going to do to us? And what's going to happen? And one of the livestock guys came in and, you know, because I, you know, looked after rural services and wool and livestock and, you know, I had the people that looked after sheep and cattle and real estate reporting to me. Some of the livestock guys comes in and he's, you know, looking at my, you know, I'm talking to him about the P&L and the numbers and what's going on. And then he looks at me and he says, so do you book my travel? Will you book my travel for me? And I'm like, uh, what? Oh, what? Oh, I do? What? And I just went, I just looked at him and I went, what? And I said, I don't know who books your travel. I have an EA. She books my travel. I don't know who books your travel. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> would he have said that to anyone else that had general manager in their title? No. Like, does a general manager book your travel? Well. It was just totally extraordinary. And I'm just looking at him going, are you crazy? Or what? You know, which, what, which is what is actually going on here? Because it was just that thing about, and they used to one of the poor guys. I mean, lovely, 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 amazing guy that worked for me. He'd been at Elders for forty years, and suddenly he's reporting to this 
Muslim woman. And he told me, and he was the most respectful, amazing person, you know, I've ever met in my life and knew everything about sheep and cattle. And he would proudly tell everyone, I work for Miriam. You know, Miriam is my boss. I work for Miriam. She's really good, blah, blah, blah. And he said to me that before I came in, all the people in the branches would send him all these emails or emails saying, ha ha, what have you done? Look at you, you're going to be working for a woman now. Because he'd never, in his 40 years of working, he'd never worked for a woman. But he was the most respectful, amazing person, willing to change, willing to learn, willing to share his experience. He took me to so many different customers in the middle of nowhere and, you know, met so many amazing people and was respectful, you know, the entire time. Mm. But imagine what he had, you know, when he told me this story, I actually felt really bad for him because like what a thing to put up with to have your colleagues that you've worked with just kind of tease you and and because you're suddenly working for a woman. It's interesting how often that men of goodwill who decide to, uh, you know, do exactly what you're saying your colleague did, treat women fairly, uh, take them on their merits, actually also get bullied by uh, other people in the company. I have heard stories like that so often and it's very disheartening because it makes it so hard for allies to uh, step up. And and I, th- I think in a way that's it's deliberate, you know. Let's oh, it make is. It as difficult as possible for the woman to do her job. Absolutely. Miriam, I also remember, and I hope you don't mind me, uh, recounting a story you told me at one stage, given your prominence, certainly uh, in the business community, but also in South Australia, and you were handing out citizenship certificates at a, at a citizenship ceremony. And a woman, well-meaning no doubt, said, you can't go up there. You've got to queue up with the other people getting their citizenship. <laughs> and you took some time explaining to her you were actually handing them out. <laughs> it was so funny. It was actually it was slightly worse than that. So for some reason, it was only the mayor and I and, uh, you know, none of the other MPs had turned up. So we were the only two. And so everyone had stood up, you know, all the people who were receiving their certificates had stood up in the room for the mayor and I to walk in and as we're walking in, this lady grabs me by the head and says, you shouldn't be here, you need to sit down and the mayor's just stopped still and I'm sitting there going, oh, oh, what do we do now? And he's just turned around and going, she's with me. (laughs) And the lady's dropped my arm as if she's been burnt and the whole crowd has kind of gone, "Uh, ah, ah, you know, kind of that little awkward laugh because they're not sure what to do because everybody's heard this, you know, 200 people have heard this. And we've continued our little walk up to the stage and oh, he's kind of yeah. smiled wryly at me and we're like, okay, let's pretend this hasn't happened now. Do you think things have changed, Miriam? I hope so. Yeah. Are you seeing signs of it though? Sometimes they have and sometimes they haven't. Do you know, I'll um, fast forward a, a little a little bit to, I, I know we'll get there to, you know, when I got cancer in 2017. And as you know, you know, all my hair fell out and, you know, I had no hair and every, everything else. And so many people said to me, you don't have to worry about not having hair because you always wear a scarf. And I found that incredibly insensitive mm-hmm. because any woman who loses a hair, because it wasn't just your hair, it's your eyebrows and everything else, you know, so, and I like my eyelashes. So I was very upset with losing my eyelashes, even though everyone told me to grow back. I'm like, that's not what I want to hear. I want you to understand that I'm upset about losing my eyelashes, mm. not so much about my hair. So when I finally got out of hospital and I um, wasn't, I couldn't wear my normal hijab because it uh, kind of hurt my head 
you know, because it was the wrong fabric and so forth. And then I thought, oh, well, I don't quite know what to do. So I got this really big hat and I went for a walk in the, uh, in the Fitzroy Gardens and I took my hat off. So, you know, I'm just a bald, small woman <laughs> sitting on a, on a seat. And what I noticed was no one would look at me and no one would speak to me. And I thought, this is very unusual because when you wear a hijab, people will actually acknowledge you. So they smile at you, they nod at you. You have no idea. They do that all the time everywhere, both in Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, everywhere. People will actually acknowledge you in a hijab and actually, you know, they're kind of that little thing of, you know, we're here for you, we understand, you know, you might have a hard time or something. And so they'll actually acknowledge you. They make was more of an effort in a way. They do. And mm. when you're a bald woman, they don't, they, they kind of look away because it's like, we don't actually know what to do. There's a bald woman sitting there. And I guess that's a very unique perspective to have. Mm. And there's only, there was only one person that spoke to me in the whole time that I was sitting in the gardens and it was actually a Muslim man. And the only reason I know that is because his wife had a hijab on. She didn't speak to me, uh, but he did. And he said, hello, how are you? How are you going? And he was the only person that spoke to me, whereas everyone else was just like, there's a bald woman. We actually don't know what to do. Mm. So I, I think we have moved on an extraordinary way. And that was kind of my way of realising how far we'd moved because so many people are so good to me because I wear a hijab and not just me, to any other Muslim woman as well. Do you think too with the um, the fact that you know, you didn't have any hair. We do tend to associate that with cancer sufferers. And there's a sort of weird universal, uh, not almost as if it, it could be catching. Not that they, they know that's not true, but it's the idea of this is sad and difficult and I don't know what to say and, and people get frozen. Do you think Yeah, that you're probably might- right. I think there is that thing yeah. about, yeah, it might be catching because I think, you know, the difference, but, you know, when you have cancer or uh, is that, you know, you do lose all of your hair. So, you know, you don't have eyebrows or, mm-hmm. or uh, people, things as well. So it's fairly obvious, I think, that, you know, yeah. you have cancer other, rather than, you know, you've shaved your head. Miriam, before we talk about resilience, because as you say, that cancer diagnosis and you'd had some health issues, obviously, before that, um, does take you to a very dark place. But um, I did want to also ask you about business culture, because you've just been speaking more broadly about culture and societal norms. What about that difference between the elders' reaction and the ANZ? Has the elders' style moved more towards an ANZ or what do you think is happening there? And for women as well. Yeah, definitely. So what I realised at elders, which is what ANZ had taught me really, is the privilege of leadership. So when you're in the leadership position, you have to make a difference for the people coming behind you. You have to do that. And that's what you're there for. You're not there to just be a mouthpiece or to just do your job. You have to make a difference for everyone else coming up behind you. So when I was at Elders, it's like, right, what else do we need to do? So the uniform didn't fit. We needed to change the uniform to make it fit for the women better. We needed to get policies in place to make sure that, you know, the women were interviewed and, you know, we'd have a woman on the panel and and so forth. So it's like, right, all of these things need to be done. Let's do them. Let's put them in place so that they're actually there and they're long lasting and they live through the organisation regardless of whether you're there or not. And for me, it's incumbent on every single person who's in 
an organisation who's in a managerial role who can make a difference. You must take every opportunity that you have to make the difference and that is the privilege of leadership absolutely true and true so elders has come a really really long way and you know mark allison i think is doing an amazing job as the ceo there as well but malcolm jackman at the time was amazing and you know truly you know believed in it and truly you know went out of his way to you know make sure that that things happened as well but i think mark's really taken it to the next level so i i think you know elders has come a long way through that as well you make a good point that uh, in a, that change really does in the end have to be driven from the top. It, it, it can't happen if the people at the top are either uh, directly or indirectly undermining whatever changes you're putting in place, that culture is really created by those who lead. Mm. Absolutely. And the values, you know, the chairman of the board, the board, the CEO, you have to model the values. You you have to. There's no opportunity to, to not do that. I mean, look at the Banking Royal Commission. You know, yeah. we don't need to go there, but just look at that. You have to model the values. You cannot let that slip in any way, shape or form. If you're customer-centric, you have to model that from the top, you know, whatever those values are. Miriam, can I take you to the other end of the spectrum, younger women? Um, we, we often talk on panels, you and I and Jane, um, about the issues for younger women. How do they, they get into environments and they look up and they don't see many role models and it's tough. What, what do you say to younger women asking for advice when they're setting out on that career track? Yeah, so the main advice I give them is do your job. So don't get caught up in what you think you should be doing. Don't get caught up in what people tell you you shouldn't be doing or you should be doing or you should be thinking about or you shouldn't be thinking about. Do your job. Your number one priority is do your job. So do your job and do your job well. And then at least if you do that, then people will respect you for doing your job and doing your job well. And then you can look at other opportunities. But if you end up in an organisation where your values don't match the organisation's values, find another job and move on. Mm. Yeah, I think it's good advice. Find a mentor. You know, the other the other yeah. thing is don't just find one mentor and don't just find female mentors. Find good male mentors as well. You need both. You need both sets of mentors, not just women. And you did talk about uh, your dark times with uh, cancer and um, also I imagine that taking over two schools in, you know, really quite difficult uh, situations were tough. What sustains you through the tough times, what, you know, when things don't look as bright and optimistic and, you know, kind of uh, happy as you would like, what, what keeps you going? What drives you on? I always tell people I'm a stubborn woman and you both know that I am. So I'm a very <laughs> stubborn woman. Well, that probably makes three of us. <laughs> Correct. Um, but religion is definitely the thing, the one thing that keeps me going. So we have a saying in, or, you know, kind of a saying in our religion that God only gives you what you can cope with. And for me, that's been a lifelong thing that I always, in times that are difficult, you know, whether it was, you know, in ANZ, you know, when you've got to sack a lot of people or, you know, at elders when things are really crazy or, uh, you know, with the two schools and funding and lawyers and governments and so forth or you know my husband got cancer before I did and you know so he got he got diagnosed in 2016 uh, and then uh, with throat cancer he's totally fine now and then when he was in hospital his father died and then three months after 
his treatment finished two weeks later. I was diagnosed with cancer and then his mother died. So, you know, in the space of eight months, we had both of his parents died and both of us diagnosed with cancer and me being quite ill. I was allergic to the chemo. So, you know, being quite ill in hospital for, you know, four months or however, however long I was actually in hospital for. And every day I would just say to myself, well, if this is what God's given me, then I better just deal with it. And somehow it takes the pressure away from it about why it happened. So I don't need to kind of ask myself, why did this happen? Or why is this happening to me? Does that make sense? That yep. kind of, yeah, it takes it that away. And so therefore I'm just going, well, this is my situation. And so therefore I just need to deal with it one day at a time, just take it one day at a time and leave behind what happened for that day and then move on to the next day. And without religion, I don't think I'd, I, I mean, I wouldn't be here, I don't think. Mm. Miriam, I've known you for a number of years. Um, I count you as a, as a great friend as well. You've always inspired me um, and I don't, I don't say that very often because I admire a lot of women, but you absolutely inspire me. Who inspires you? Oh, everybody, every day from uh, Anthony, who is the homeless guy on the, on, who sits in Burke Street every day, who, uh, you know, I speak to every time I walk past him. Every single person inspires me from, from him to both of you to, uh, you know, my, my mother probably inspired me a lot, to people I read about, to, you know, the Elizabeth Prousts and the Libby Lyons and the Liz Brodericks and, and so forth, as well as, you know, a huge number of, of men out, out there as well. But every single person in, inspires me because everyone just has such an amazing story to to tell. I've never not been inspired by a single person, but I also don't just have one or two. It's, uh, I look at, I guess I have that sense of joy and amazement with every person that I meet. And I think uh, you're the kind of person that people talk to and tell their stories yeah. to. And that's that's something that is a real, a, a wonderful quality, something I don't think. You, can, you can't manufacture that. Can't manufacture another Miriam Silver, can I no. say. <laughs> you wouldn't want to. <laughs> oh, well, they say you get what you give, you see, Miriam. That's, that's very what I true. told my daughters. Unfortunately, sometimes that didn't work out as well as I'd hoped. <laughs> <laughs> it's been wonderful to talk to you, Miriam. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yes, Thank you, Jane and Catherine. Great. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. Producer Lib Crown. Theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.